Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, wonderful introduction. How are you all? Good? Excellent. Well, this evening is very special for me because in 40 days from now, I will be in a place that's very cold. In 40 days from now, I embark on a 600-mile journey to the South Pole with my son, who's 23, and therefore it's been really nice to be in the UAE to warm up at plus 40 to go to minus 40. Now, one very important word was missed out in that introduction. The word is, I actually am the first person in history stupid enough to have walked to both poles. And if you are that person, it really is almost as simple as saying there are four things that you are sure of for the rest of your life. And those four things are, is one is I really don't like walking. I've done too much. Secondly, just imagine this. Imagine minus 75 Celsius. Imagine what it would be like outside here if you went out this evening. It was plus 75. And at minus 75, sweat turns to ice inside your clothes. It's that cold. So the second thing I'm pretty sure of is I don't like having ice in my underpants. Thirdly, after 61 years so far on the planet, pretty tough years, no insurance company has got the courage to give me life insurance. You'll understand why. And lastly, and it increases almost every day for me, that we seem to live in a world dominated by negative. Watch the news when you're doing this. It's fairly negative. Most newspapers are negative. And I think that people are negative because it's easy to be negative. It's much harder to be positive. But I do believe that good leadership, doesn't matter what age you are, Good leadership requires making the effort to be that positive person. It counts. And I think our world needs positive people and positive messages. Now, <clears throat> I ask you to imagine walking to the South Pole and a map of where you're going. That's the map. And we might actually start to consider turning the lights down a bit, team, at the back. That would be useful. Now, imagine walking across that and looking at it this evening. I look at it with slightly different eyes because I'll be seeing that quite soon again. And imagine arriving at the South Pole after 70 days of that view and getting onto an aeroplane coming back to civilization, so it's called, back in London, Heathrow Airport, you're very thin, you've 
lost 33 kilograms in 70 days, so you're a bit thin. You haven't had a bath or shower for a year. That's even extreme for an Englishman. You haven't seen your girlfriend for a year. There's lots of excitement. But the first thing you're told standing there is you have to go on a TV chat show. You don't even know who you are. And the first question they asked me, I promise you, was, was it cold, Bob? <laughs> At that second, you know there's hope in life, because you can't be the only stupid person on the planet. But eventually, after laughing at you, making fun, they ask one good question, only one. And the question is, why did you do this, Rob? And this began for me, last time I was properly dressed, check out that haircut, at the age of 11. And it's great, I see a few young people here. Welcome. And at the age of 11, I saw a film. Now, I'm so old that that film was in black and white. And the film was called Scott of the Antarctic, about the truly great British explorer, Robert Falcon Scott, who tried to reach the South Pole first and arrived at the South Pole with his team after 900 miles to find the Norwegian flag flying there, beaten to the South Pole by the brilliant Amundsen from Norway. Not the best day, I'm sure, he ever had. And on the return, Scott and his whole team died out there on the ice cap. And it fascinated me, this story. The place fascinated me that there was one place in the world that we all owned. There was no war, no fighting, just this extraordinary place at the bottom of the world. And it captured my imagination when I was 11. And I think I was lucky to hold on to that dream. And I do suggest to everybody here this evening is if you have a dream, hold on to it. Don't let it go. Dreams can melt through your hands and you wake up one day and think, where did it go? Hang on to it. So I was inspired by the real explorers, but I was also really inspired, and it's always good to come to university again, I was really inspired by the fact that the idea of becoming a polar traveller went down really well with girls at parties. So I thought this is going to be the career to follow. Now, at the age of 22, I had to raise 5 million US dollars. Hired a little small section of this old warehouse on the River Thames in London, being me, I thought I could raise five million in two weeks and head off to the South Pole. The reality was different. It took me seven years of my life to raise five million dollars. Why? Because I had no credibility. I was no one. I'm still no one. And people would say, I'm not going to sponsor you, Rob. You're going to die. And I learned something. If people say no to you enough, listen to why they say no. And if you're clever enough, 
you can work things round to get a yes. So anybody here where people are saying no, listen carefully, ask questions, and you can turn a no into a yes. And after seven years, we raised the money, bought a ship, Southern Quest, and we now head south from... Can we turn the lights down a bit? I can't really see these pictures, or maybe I'm going blind. But anyhow, have another go at the lights, guys. They don't need to see me, need to see the pictures. So we head now south on board Southern Quest and south of New Zealand. The ice starts to coat the ship. And I'm thinking we should have really gone to you know, the Bahamas or Abu Dhabi or somewhere nice and warm and sat on the beach. Uh, it, get, it becomes now very real. And we land south of New Zealand on the shores of the only place in the world that we all own. I bet you didn't know that all of you in this room are responsible for one piece of Antarctica. It's yours, the size of a football pitch. Because if you divide 7.5 billion people into the area of Antarctica, all of you have a little piece of it to look after because no one owns it. And it's the last true wilderness left on Earth. Five of us will live on the edge of Antarctica for a year, and three of us will make a journey to the South Geographic Pole where you can go no farther south, the pole itself. We land on the shores of Antarctica, and then if you ever think you've had a bad day, try this one. You're standing there, and there is no, you won't be connected for a year because there's no connection. The iPhone has yet to be invented. We have no radio communications. Nothing. And our friends on the ship wave goodbye and sail over the horizon. And we think, let's hope they come back in one year from now. No communications, on our own, and we're 5,000 kilometers from civilization. That's it. And we just trust that the ship will return to collect us. We brought a little home from London, and we put that home up. The weather closes in, the sea freezes over, and we get inside that hut. I want you to think now of four people who really irritate you. And I'm not talking about a small amount here. I'm talking about really irritate you. Because I didn't choose all my best friends to go on this expedition. Because I learned something being number seven in the family. I'm the youngest. I learned something as a boy that why, why people upset me was normally because they were right. So I learned as a kid that actually different people with different ideas, different ways of thinking and doing is a lot stronger than having all your best friends all saying yes. So as leaders, whatever age you are, don't always select people who you like to be on the team. Choose the right people because diversity is strong. And round this table, very quickly, we have 
Captain John Tolson, of course, as an Englishman, would wear a tie in Antarctica, it's expected. <laughs> John Tolson was our cameraman and never said anything. Imagine living in a box with a silent person for nine months. You want to slap them. Fantastic man, would make a brilliant film. And for those people in today's society where there's a bit of this action and making a video, checking it, he would make a film that lasted making it for a year and he never knew whether one frame came out because he had no video. All he was doing was making a film on old 16 millimeter and hoping like hell it was coming out. So that was John on the left in the checked shirt is Gareth Wood. Gareth is so well organized, he is ill. He's what I would call anally retentive. Are you getting the picture here? He can do nothing without 10,000 checklists per hour, ticking it with different colored pencils in boxes. Are you getting the picture now? He's well organized, highly irritating. Brilliant person, but highly irritating to live in a box with for nine months. You keep making a mess just to see what happens. <laughs> Myself, as any of my friends and fellow Antarctic travelers here will know, I, I'm really irritating because I'm always saying we can do it. Like some record, oh, don't, we can do it. Don't worry, we can do it really irritating person and I'm completely useless on detail. Ask me to remember anything, it isn't gonna happen. And I was not an easy person to live with for nine months. On the right, the great Roger Meir, one of the finest mountaineers the world will ever know. Ask Roger anything, he'll just say no. He's the most gloomy, pessimistic person you'll ever wish not to meet. He says, oh, no, we can't do it. It'll never happen. I mean, he and I are completely opposite people. But together, we would make a small, rather pointless piece of history. But together, we'd do it. On the right, our own doctor, Michael. He was the most irritating of us all for the simple reason he's a scientist. And he would be taking blood samples, injecting us with drugs just to see what happened. Sounds interesting. After nine months, we wanted to kill him. So how do we hold this together when the bottom line is if we fail, we die? We die. Very simple. You tell each other the truth. And you try and listen to what each other's really saying. Most of us listen to what we want to hear. Try listen to what people are really saying. A bit more of a test. But we tried that. Telling the truth, listening. Simple tools. We came through nine months. We didn't like each other anymore, but we held respect. And then the sun returns after four months of darkness. Myself, Gareth, remember he's the organized one, and gloomy Roger, we would make this journey together. John and Michael would stay at the base. What's extraordinary about this photograph of 30 years ago, almost exactly, is there are no electronics in that photograph. None. There were no radios. 
There were no GPS where you press a button and you go, oh, that's where we are. So we would navigate to one building about the size of this room, 1,600 kilometers away, using a sextant, the sun, and a watch. And if we make mistakes, we'll miss the pole and we're dead. No radios, can't ring up mummy for help, that's it. We would attempt the longest unassisted march ever made anywhere on earth in history. And on this day, I stopped leading. I'd got everybody to this point, but I'm not a mountaineer. And I would hand it over to Roger out front, the most extraordinary person. He would navigate us to the South Pole. He would lead us to the South Pole. Gareth, number two, if any of our equipment breaks, we're dead. But Gareth's there, I promise you, with specially sort of laminated checklists with special pencils filling stuff in, right, to make sure it didn't break. And my job is to pull my sledge and support them. There is a part of leadership, my friends, which I call servant leadership. A leader should be supporting truly their team, not pretending to. And off we go, each sledge 180 kilograms, 900 miles to go, 5,200 calories each person, off we go. We must cross 5,000 estimated crevasses. If a crevasse bridge breaks, you go through, you don't come home. And we have 5,000 to cross. And if you stopped on the edge of each one to have a feedback session, we wouldn't be here. Because if we run out of food and fuel, we're dead five days. I'm taking you, ladies and gentlemen, on a journey to my desert, from your desert. Because the first thing you die of in Antarctica is the first thing you die of out here dehydration. Antarctica is much of, as much of a desert as you live in. And if you don't respect it, you don't come home. So we had to be efficient with our time, trust each other's judgment, and keep moving forward. Average 20 kilometers a day, day in, day out, nine days a, nine, seven days a week, nine hours a day. And we're now in the most extraordinary place on earth. And for any younger people here on our expedition that's happening in 40 days, we're gonna make a virtual reality film. Imagine what a virtual reality film is gonna look like with a view that's already 360. It's gonna be interesting. But where we're standing here is in an area the size of the United States of America. And we're the only people there. Think of that. A bit lonely. And if you twist an ankle, break a leg, that's it. You're left to die. Because the others are now too weak to pull another person. And beneath our feet in this photograph, beneath our feet is 4,200 meters of solid ice. 70% of all the world's fresh water 
is under our feet. 90% of all the world's ice, we're standing on it. And mark my words, if we continue, I repeat, continue to melt this, you swim here. If we continue to melt it. Now, I wasn't thinking about that, 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 anything to do with this at this stage. I was thinking, get to the pole, have a bath, have some more to eat. And as we're closing in on the pole, our ship, Southern Quest, remember, had left us a year earlier, comes now back to our base camp. We don't know this is happening. We have no iPhone 10 in our hands, right? But according to the plan, Southern Quest returns to the base, unloads an aeroplane. The plane goes onto an iceberg, takes off with a complete lunatic at the controls. The plane flies to the pole, looks for us. And if they find us, we jump on the plane and go back to the base camp. Now, imagine raising five million US dollars and you've never been camping, and you want to do this. Well, it needed some help. And I hope some of you remember the name Jacques Cousteau from France. Good man. And Jacques Cousteau was my patron, my patron, right? And he helped me with credibility. And it doesn't matter what age you are, who you are. One of the greatest gifts any of us can give to each other is credibility. It's a great gift to give. And he gave me credibility. Oh, Jacques Cousteau thinks Rob Swan's a good chap. He must be. So it helped me raise the money to do this. And, but he asked me to do something for him. And he said, at the end of your expedition, Rob, leave Antarctica tidy. Just leave your footsteps in the snow. Respect that we all own this. I said, look, listen, cut the speech. I'll clear my rubbish, get on the phone and raise some money. But we made a commitment that we would take away everything. That was the deal. And those last few days to the South Pole, I still have nightmares about them. Because had we calculated weeks before, made a mistake with our direction, made a mistake with the sextant and got our position wrong, we could have arrived at the South Pole and gone, where is it? 50 miles off course, 100 miles off course. It was possible. And you wouldn't know where it was. And with probably five days of food left, you'd wander around in circles run out of food, dead. So were we on course? The answer is, I was truly with the best. Roger Meir navigated us using the sun, a sextant and a watch, 300 meters off course in 900 nautical miles. People said it was impossible. And do remember, a compass doesn't work at the South Pole. It just goes round. Unbelievable what he did. And we saw the South Pole, we'd made it, and we stood 
and we're really proud of what we've done. Do you know something? One of the, I've made a lot of mistakes, trust me. Still do. But one of the greatest mistakes that I've made in life is to go through life as if it will go on forever. And rarely have I stopped and just celebrated now. I've always been thinking, right, done, next. I'm that sort of person. But we stopped this time. Three people who didn't like each other very much had made a small piece of history. And we were so happy, so proud, so joyous that we had done it. We had five minutes to go, yes! And then the base commander came out from the South Pole looking really upset and said, sorry, Rob, bad news. Your ship sank five minutes ago. And remember, we haven't been in commit. We don't know anything. We haven't spoken to anybody for a year. So I fill in lottery tickets. You know those things? Every week with a lot of hope. Because winning the lottery is easier odds than losing your ship five minutes before you reach the South Pole when you've spoken to no one for a year. Now, the most important thing for all of us is safety. And all my team are safe. And that's all that counts, really. A few other minor problems. You can't insure a ship here. I promised my bank manager, bless his heart, that I would pay off my debts by selling the ship when we got home. No insurance, no ship. I lose my house, my savings, I'm bankrupt. Just like that. Next problem. We'd promised Jacques Cousteau that we would remove our 60 tonnes of equipment from Antarctica. The ship is now at the bottom of the ocean. It's 5,000 kilometres back to New Zealand. And I've got 25 people standing on an iceberg in the middle of nowhere thinking, wait till we get hold of Rob. It was his idea in the first place. And we're nearly dead standing at the South Pole. So it wasn't quite as I'd pictured it when I was 11, you know, Captain Scott at the South Pole. It was like, oh, goodness. But I learned something on this day. And what I learned is that leadership actually is quite easy. We make it complicated. Leadership is very simple, in my humble opinion. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Deliver on your word. Because if you don't deliver on your word, people won't listen to you really more than once, maybe twice. But if you're the sort of person that keeps breaking their promise, no one's going to actually take you seriously again. So I thought we must finish the expedition. We promised Jacques Cousteau we'd remove the rubbish and do it we must. And the only way to do that was that I had to ask for three people to spend another year at our base camp. Because if you leave a building in Antarctica unsupervised, it will blow everywhere. It'll get destroyed by the storms. And the first person to volunteer, think of this. I said, anybody want to stay a year? 
And Gareth, remember, he'd lived there a year. He'd just walked to the pole. He stepped forward and said, Rob, I'm the only person that's got the paperwork to run the base. Remember? Unbelievable. He would be two years of his life in Antarctica without going home. Two from the ship joined him. And I can now tell you, I've been unable to tell people this for 30 years, but now I can tell you because the pilots of this US naval aeroplane have either retired or died. This was good. The pilots of this amazing aeroplane literally looked the other way. And they said to me, look, Rob, jump on the back of this plane with your 25 people and hide and we'll get you back to New Zealand and they can't send you back from New Zealand to Antarctica so get on the back and we'll look the other way so we all jumped on the back of this plane hid in the back six and a half hours later we landed in New Zealand jumped out of the plane the customs people didn't know what to do but we were back in civilization uh, I wanted to thank the US naval pilots for that and exactly one year after the loss of our ship, I found another ship, went south, picked up Gareth, picked up the team, cleared our rubbish, and left Antarctica as we'd found it clean and tidy. And that, thank you, that to me was also building track record. Any young people here? If you want people to take you seriously, build some track record. So you've got a good story. So if you say you're going to do something, people say, wow, great. They're a person that does what they say. So I'm building a little bit of track record, also delivering on our promise. Now, something happened to me walking to the South Pole that brought me here this evening, and it hurt. My eyes changed colour. In 70 days through damage, our faces blistered out. The skin came away. And you can see here we wear what's called a balaclava. And you only make this mistake once in life. But when your face is all peeling off, the last thing you should do is to take your balaclava and pull it off. Because your face goes with it. You only do it once. But why were our faces peeling and swelling and blistering why were our eyes burning like somebody was rubbing salt into our eyes we didn't know but when we got home we were told by NASA that we'd walked under the hole in the ozone layer the month it was discovered so the ultraviolet rays had come through hit the ice bounced back burnt our faces burnt out our eyes and it's quite a shock to come home with blisters in your eyes thinking without an ozone layer nothing would grow on earth nothing no plants nothing no trees nothing it started me thinking that maybe some of these issues about our survival here our survival as a species might not be somebody else's problem maybe they were my problem but first, I know there's some eminent business people here, please don't laugh, but I thought maybe we could walk to the North Pole and pay off the debt from the South Pole. 
one of my bad ideas. The, dr the debt was tripled, but who cares really? We'd get there. So off we go now to the North Pole. This time we have a team of eight of us from seven different nations. Gareth and Roger said, good luck, Rob, off you go, we've done enough. And this time, eight from seven nations. This time, we're going to walk across a frozen ocean for 70, sorry, 700 miles away from land. So when you go to the North Pole, you go onto a frozen sea. It's like going down to the beach here, get onto the sea and walk to India. So every step is away from land into the middle of a frozen ocean. Walking to the North Pole is extremely physically hard. It's a very rough surface. It would pound the hell out of us. It's not something I suggest anybody should do. This would be our home for 56 nights in a row. And we had to learn patience. You know, patience? It's quite an important word. I'm not very patient. I'm working on it. Check out Daryl from Harlem, New York City, who had become the first American to walk to the North Pole. Look how much he loved Rupert's music. <laughs> but we had to learn patience with each other. Here's me coming in washing, naked at minus 68 degrees Celsius. I don't think people in the UAE ever get cold. But if anybody ever says to you, I'm cold, if they look like this, they are. If they don't, they're not. We are now 642 miles away from land. And I'm thinking, yes, 100 miles to go. I'll never have to do this again. This was great. And then overnight, the only thing we hadn't planned for happened. The whole ocean begins to move beneath our feet. Now remember, 642 miles from land, no radio communications, no one can get to us. And in four days, the whole ocean beneath our feet breaks up. 28 years ago. So when people talk about climate change, and they say, well, climate change isn't really happening. Send them to me. And I will take them, put them on this piece of ice, and leave them there. Maybe a couple of days, and then go back and have a word with them. Because this ocean had never broken up in the month of April. It's supposed to break up in August. So 28 years ago... Four months before it ever had, the Arctic Ocean has broken up. Do you know something? As I stand here, people cannot walk to the North Pole anymore because there's no ice. We have to listen to these things. I could be the first person in history to walk to both poles, and I might end up being the last. We have to listen to what our world is really trying to say. And let's get this straight, that I am not an explorer. I'm not an environmentalist. I'm too stupid to be a scientist, 
But you know what I'm good at? Staying alive. I'm a good survivor. And a good survivor does not see a threat and do nothing about it. A survivor sees a threat and does something about it. That's how you stay alive. So climate change is happening. 98% of all science agrees that it's happening. How much we are causing it, we don't quite know yet. But trust me, 7.5 billion people have to be having some impact on it. So from a survivor point of view, do the right thing, just in case. That's it. And this means at this stage that we're dead. Not every day you're alive and go, great, we're dead. Because in 20 hours of trying to go north, we're still drifting south. Then we have to think of how are we going to stay alive. And the only way to stay alive is to cheat time. Cheat time itself. How? Because it's always daylight at the North Pole in summer. There's no dark. So we can run now 40-hour days instead of 24. We can throw away the clock and march to stay alive. And I'm sorry to show you the next picture. I think you can handle this, young lady. Yes, I think so. That when things go wrong for us, we can't ring up mum and say, can we come home? No. And Daryl, our brave American, 100 miles out, his heel drops off his foot from frostbite. He said to me one morning, he said, Rob, my foot feels really funny. I said, show me. Takes off his sock and his heel flies across the bottom of the tent. And they're going, yeah, okay, bandage it up, bandage it up, carry on. But he was incredibly brave to keep walking on this foot. He did. And those last few miles to the pole, heaven. The ice came together. And after 56 really tough days, we arrive at the pole. Job done. And we flew a flag, which I think is still important. We go back home, and guess what? Wanted to go and have a cup of tea with my mum, but Jacques Cousteau hauls me in and said, Robert, didn't say, well done, good job, remove the rubbish from the Antarctic, you reach both parts. None of that. He just said, Robert. What are you doing for the next 50 years? And I said, could I just sit down while you tell me? And he did. And he gave me a 50-year mission 26 years ago. And it's a very simple mission. No one owns Antarctica. It should remain as a continent for land, for a, a, a continent for science and peace. It should. No one owns it. We should look after it. And Jacques Cousteau said, right, off you go, Rob, and make sure we have the sense to leave this place alone. For 26 years, we've been working on that mission. How? By taking fabulous young leaders from all over the world down to Antarctica, because you guys are going to be voting in 2041. And we started with 35 young people, very NYU, Abu Dhabi, 35 young people from 22 different nations. 
We went down there and I made another one of my fabulous mistakes. I said to the young, never do this, by the way. Never say to young people, you choose the mission. Because they'll come up with some spectacularly tough job. And they did. I thought they might have adopted a penguin or done something sensible, but no. We saw 1,500 tonnes of twisted metal left in Antarctica. And the young people said, Rob, could you move it? It would be very inspirational. This took eight years, 10.5 million US dollars the idiot here had to raise. I wish I'd saved some, but this was great. Business women, businessmen, young people, engineers came down to Antarctica for only three months a year could we work there, only three. I managed to get a yacht sponsored that has sailed the seven seas. Uh, she's done 228,000 nautical miles. She's been here in Abu Dhabi, um, thanks to British Petroleum. Nice to see you again, sir. And we have used this as our kind of flagship to get people to understand what 2041 is all about. We pulled all that rubbish together, took down an old ship. And remember, we only have a team of three people that do all this. Myself, my son, and they're absolutely amazing. Anne Kershaw, who some people in this room know well. We do all this, three of us. Took down the ship, loaded it up. That took four months. And then the words of my mum. My mum is 102 years old on October the 24th in about two weeks, three weeks' time. And she said to me, as only my mother could, Robert, you can't possibly go to the Antarctic, remove all that rubbish, and not recycle it, boy. And I said, Mum, we're on it. So inspired by my mum, we recycled all of this back in the country of Uruguay, South America, 3,000 miles away. So I think I have every right to say to people, could be a bit exhausting, but you might just move your arm, you know, with your bottle or can and make an effort to recycle it. I think they listen after hearing this. Very proud of that job done. So this beach was where all the garbage and rubbish used to be. We cleaned it up and it was like Steven Spielberg was there. It literally happened. We all stood there and went, yes. And it was like Spielberg said, action penguins. And literally they came out of the sea back onto their clean beach. It was fantastic. After 41 years of all that twisted metal blocking their path. And on this day, thank you, on this day, I think if there's one word that I'd like to leave you with this evening, don't panic, I'm not quite finished yet, but the one word is relevant. Be relevant. It's very easy to think you're being relevant to the people you love, to those people who love you, to your family, to your work, to your nation. 
your community, to the planet. It's very easy to think you're relevant and actually you can wake up one day and realize that you're not being relevant. And this was a day for me. After all that effort, eight years, I thought I, I'm not being relevant. I can't save Antarctica by being a rubbish collector. I have to actually start to think about business and money. Why would people want to go and exploit Antarctica, I thought? It would be for energy. And it's a really long way away. My Antarctic team will tell you. It's a really long way away, isn't it? Across the Drake Passage. It's forever. So it would cost a lot of money to go and exploit Antarctica. And no one owns it. So how could we really make sure it was preserved easy? Use more clean, renewable energy here in the real world. Save energy here in the real world. Understand that our future is going to be a mix of energies, but hopefully gradually moving to renewables on their own. Different fuels, biofuels, all those things, if we're using them, driving the cost down of those fuels, the cost down of solar, the cost down of wind, guess what? In 2041, no one's going to go and exploit Antarctica because it won't make financial sense to do it. So I changed from being a rubbish collector to a renewable energy champion and tester. I would try, anyhow. So off we go. First, thanks to BP, I can think you can see your flag there. Excellent. We would start what we call the voyage for cleaner energy around the world. And cleaner would be underlined, not clean, but cleaner. And <clears throat> we did 220 odd thousand nautical miles around the world eight times, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, all around here, showing people how re renewable energy works. Solar panel sales, sales made of recycled plastic bottles, they work, testing out different types of fuels in our engine, making them work under real conditions. And every year, we visit the Antarctic. And I would just like my team, who've been to the Antarctic, just to stand up, please. Don't be embarrassed, just stand. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys, girls. And um, every year we go south. And I am a very strong believer in working with great nations like India. There's only 1.4 billion of them, right? We need to take it seriously. And working with China, 1.3 billion of them. These are the future powers of the world. The West, Europe, my country, England, well, that's finished already just about, but, you know, <laughs> the, the power will switch from the West to India, China, this part of the world. That's Korea. That's where the future lies. So it's really important we work with these nations. But now there's a special person here on the front row. I had to start somewhere with getting especially women involved from the Middle East to come with us to the Antarctic. And Donna, you're here this evening. And you became the first 
lady ever from the UAE to come with us. And Donna won't mind me saying she had to struggle to convince family to come, to be allowed to come, that it was okay to come. We had to raise money. This was new ground, wasn't it? It was really hard. And she became the first lady from the UAE to come to Antarctica. Remember that day? Fantastic. And I'm so glad you're here. It's very special because you made it possible for so many other, yes, so many other women from the Middle East to make that journey. And Sahar's here, and she represented Saudi Arabia. Imagine trying to get a lady to come from Saudi Arabia on her own to the Antarctic. It wasn't easy, was it? Right? But she did it. And I think all women here should be proud of our team because we have more women that come on our expedition than men. Not because I want it. Well, of course, it's nice for me. <laughs> but to have all the glamour, but these girls are seriously passionate and do so much when they return. So we've taken, I don't know, 65 now, people from all over the Gulf region, the Middle East, down to Antarctica, and we're very proud of that, and I'm proud of all of you. Well done. And what we see in Antarctica is frightening. It's like you going home tonight, driving down your street and go, hang on, there was a house there when we left. It's gone. But there were five trees there. They've disappeared. Well, they've moved. Why is that? It would be like that for me when I go to Antarctica. Because I go every year and I go into a bay and go, wow, there's an island. I've never seen that island before. And Jumper, our expedition leader, he says, Rob, the reason you're seeing that island is that last year it was covered with ice and the ice has gone. So you see a different landscape. You see massive areas of ice that shouldn't be there. And I can't remember whose expedition this was. I think two years ago was the hottest day in the history of Antarctica measured by NASA. It should be zero not plus 17.5. We must listen to what our world is trying to tell us. So, I'm a great believer, and that's really why I'm here. And uh, Roots and Shoots is important to me. You know that, Tara, the great Jane Goodall. It's an important organization. And I believe in supporting teachers. For some really weird reason, we sort of send our children off to teachers and go, oh, God, they can do it now. We don't support teachers enough. And I've tried by building these education stations around the world. And these education stations run only on renewable energy. Our first one in Antarctica, look how much the solar panels enjoyed their holiday, not much. But this is my home. I think I must be one of the only people that was told by my bank manager, I don't know, I think I've lost my house or houses, I think about seven times now. I got so sick of being hauled in by the bank manager saying, right, Rob, it's time, you know, you've got to give us the deeds, we're selling the house, and I'm going, oh, 
And one day I just walked in with the deeds. Should have seen the bank manager's face. I said, look, I'm tired of it. Take the damn house. As long as we can keep the yacht, we're okay. So I don't have really a home. And my home is there. Girls, check out the plastic flowers in Antarctica. Efforts are made. And I survive in that little house in Antarctica only on renewable energy. Minus 20 outside, plus 20 inside, it works there. So we can make it work elsewhere. And anybody from India here? Fantastic. My favorite country. Now, remember being relevant? Anybody from India will agree with me that if I went to India with a yacht, people would go whatever. Wouldn't mean anything. Also, you'd end up in customs for 56 years, so one doesn't want to do that, or we might have visa problems. So you've got to be relevant. So to be relevant between 2010 and 2014, I spent years in India on a bicycle. And trust me, riding a bicycle around India is a lot more dangerous than walking to the South Pole backwards in your underpants. <laughs> Trust me. I like this picture. Those at the front will see why, because the color of the traffic signal is red. <laughs> and everybody's just going straight through, just my sort of plates. But however, to be relevant, to visit universities, colleges, schools, just like this wonderful one here, they wouldn't have wanted Rob Swan to arrive in a limousine that red-faced Englishman arriving on his bike, they don't forget that. So be relevant. And it was fantastic to go around all the colleges, schools, universities, meeting young people in India and reminding them that they can't make the same mistakes that we continue to make to get what we have. And if they do, we swim. Simple. And a lot of them as my team will know, come down to the Antarctic with us. Great people, aren't they? They're all those Indian maniacs that come on our ship. And in India, we built a e-base uh, at an education station as a tiger reserve. We went up into the Himalayas. Couldn't do the last bit on the bike. But do you know something? That the Himalayas provides over three billion people with water. Three billion. And this is the head of the Ganges River, the mighty Ganga River, very holy place in India called Gomuk. And that glacier there is going back almost at crawling speed. And if we melt the Himalayas, there's three billion people without water, worth a thought. So we tried in our own small way. What we do is only small, but we try. And if you don't try, you don't get. If you do the same, you get the same in life. And we built, who was with Paris on the expedition? Paris Lumben at 2012? Anybody was with him? Anyhow, Paris was one of our alumni, gave up his job when he got back home to India, which is almost like committing a crime in India to give up your job. 
and he built this education station with me high up in the Himalayas. And at the end of last year, we're very proud of this, we went up into the Himalayas and gave a monastery the first light that they'd ever had, except in the day. So this guy could see what he was doing for the first time in 2,000 years. And this young man was highly impressed to have solar light at night. Great. It's only small, but give it a go. Keep trying. And we have a little education station in the United States of America. One of our great alumni, James Bray, some of you might remember him, uh, he built this education station. <laughs> took him eight years of his life on top of a mountain in West Virginia, which is no longer a mountain because it was all taken away for coal. He did all of this on his own. Unbelievable stuff. And I want to test you. Everybody here knows there's a hole in the ozone, yeah? How many people are here honestly, except my team, and if you don't know it, go to your rooms. How many people here honestly know that the hole in the ozone is fixing itself? Who knows that? Honestly? Quite a lot, but not many. Why don't we know that it's fixing itself? I'll tell you why. Because it's good news. That's why. If the hole in the ozone was getting worse and we were all going to fry to death, we'd all know about it. But because it's fixing itself, because governments had the sense 27 years ago, after our faces got burnt off, they signed the Montreal Protocol stopping the use of CFC gases that were going up there to put a hole in it. They did it in a week. But we don't know it's good news. So I really do suggest that we ought to be more in the good news business because NASA announced last year that at last the hole in the ozone is starting to fix itself. Great news. We can take on massive issues to do with our survival on earth and we can make a difference. So I was actually thinking about a holiday Maybe I could have come to Abu Dhabi and hung out on the beach for a while. Or maybe Hawaii with a bit of grass skirt action. And I was thinking about it, right? And then NASA ring me up. Rob, come and see us. And I really respect NASA because they measure things. There are scientists in this room. NASA measure things. They're not emotional. They measure stuff. And they called me in and they said, Rob, and they showed me this map. They said, Rob, why is no one taking it seriously that we're telling everybody that parts of Antarctica are now disintegrating much faster than we thought? Hence, if you look at this up here, that's the Larsen B, the Larsen C ice shelf area. This is where any of our team visit the Antarctic. But that's the size of France. That's bigger than the size of France. So these huge ice shelves are starting to disintegrate faster than even the most pessimistic people thought. This is NASA saying. 
They said, Rob, what do we do? And I said, well, let's stop being so depressing about it for a start. Let's do something. And unfortunately, I took my son, Barney, who's 23, to that meeting. Came out of the meeting. He looked at me and he said, Dad, we have to do something. We've spent 26 years trying to preserve Antarctica, or you have, but Antarctica's telling us a different story. That if we don't listen to what's going on there, Antarctica is going to come and get us. Melt it, sea level rises, we have a problem. 15 years ago, Larsen B ice shelf broke off. A month ago, or two months ago, the Larsen C ice shelf broke off. Both of these I've walked on. They're gone. It's a lot of ice. Melt the shelves of Antarctica, the main body of the Antarctic ice cap, the size of the USA, can pour into the ocean, and guess what? We swim. New York, Shanghai, Abu Dhabi, it, it, these things are real. And it's very real for people who had nothing to do with it. These poor people in the Maldives are having to move house. And they didn't do anything to add to all of this. So we need to listen and we need to be positive. So my son, being him, said, Dad, it's time to walk again. Now, I guarantee you, that ever since I reached the North Pole, I thought, well, at least there's one thing I don't have to do, and that's walk to any more poles. But Barney said, Dad, that's what you're known for. And it's time that we started a positive campaign, and we're going to call it the Climate Force Challenge. And it starts on November the 15th, this year. And Barney and I will walk the green line here of 600 nautical miles. This is what we did 30 years ago to the South Pole, 900 nautical miles. And this time we will survive only on renewable energy. It's never been done. And in order to test that out, Side, where are you? You're there. Uh, we had a fantastic team that came down at the end of last year. Because I might be stupid, but I'm not crazy and there's a difference. There is. Trust me. And... We went down to go and test out some of these fantastic new technologies. And Saeed from the UA came down and helped support that. We did a bit of walking, got the feel of what was going on. And my son Barney, he's the handsome one on the left. And, my, and myself will make this journey to the South Geographic Pole. And working with a scientist from NASA, this is so exciting, we have built these extraordinary ice melters which go directly from solar, no batteries, into this special pot, put the ice in, start walking, four hours later you've got hot water. Amazing. And this technology they want to use on Mars. Because do you know something? The first people who will go to Mars won't be astronauts. There'll be people like me, and I'll tell you why. Because it will be a one-way trip. The first people to go to Mars, there won't be fuel to bring them back. So the first people to go to Mars will be 
surviving as we survive. Very lightweight equipment, minimum technology, minimum weight. And what we do know is that there's ice on Mars. So this technology is probably something refined and improved that the first people to, to go on Mars will use to melt the ice there and stay alive. We're very proud of these things. We've got the most extraordinary batteries all tested out with Saeed and our team. And our mission, you know, when the most powerful nation on the planet, and I'm not political, get it straight, I have no real interest in, in that. But when the most powerful nation on Earth now removes itself from the most important climate agreement ever made, you have to actually say it's time for people. Not time for governments, not time for more talk, but time for people to actually contribute to doing something and have some targets. I think if there's one thing that the environmental sustainability movement lacks is having targets. So people feel that they make an effort and it's going towards something that's measurable. So over the next seven years, we are going to clean up 326 million tonnes of carbon from our atmosphere. It could mean not using the top of a Starbucks coffee cup that you don't need. It could mean not using a straw. It could mean buying a solar panel. It could mean walking to work. Obviously not here, you'd boil to death. But it, it's little things that people can do. We're producing an app so that people won't lose that movement they love, right? And they can stop, press a button, and the amount they've saved goes into our target. And there are lots of small things that people can do, but we've come across the most extraordinary technologies that are happening. And Barney and I, when we walk to the pole, will produce about 30 tonnes of CO2. My flight's here to the UAE and probably not anymore to India because I've had a visa problem, but uh, whatever it is, whatever we've done to get this expedition together is about 30 tonnes of CO2. And this is something that you will see in the future, where people can suck CO2 out of the air and turn it into rocks. Turn it into building blocks. And ladies, the cream that we'll be using for the South Pole in a month's time is actually coming from CO2. Not fossil fuels, but CO2. So we will eventually be able to use CO2 in all kinds of different ways. And it's only just started. It's nothing as big as this. But if you go to Iceland sometime next year, if you happen to visit Iceland, you might find a rock that weighs 15 tons. And there'll be a little plaque on it saying, this is Rob and Barney's half of their CO2 uh, when they walk to the pole. All these things are possible, but probably the most important thing is if you plant a tree, you can still save a tonne of CO2. Well, I've spent an awful lot of time running up and down hills, pulling tires, frightening Americans, which is always quite good fun, and um, getting fit and strong to make this journey. Barney and I start on the 15th of November, and our intention 
is to reach the South Geographic Pole on the 14th of January. It's going to be hard, it'll be tough, but what we want to do is to inspire people that if we're willing to go and do this, it's time they could do a couple of things with the click of a mouse. Time for the convenient solutions. So ladies and gentlemen, it means so much to come and tell you this story. This is without doubt the last talk probably I'll be doing, last visit to a country where I'm doing talks before we head to the poll. And I'm so proud of you pirates here on the front row who've been to Antarctica, come to see us all this evening, and Dana, especially you, who made it possible for so many women to follow in your footsteps. You should be so proud of yourself. You made it happen for so many other people. Because once you'd done it, there was no excuse that other people couldn't do it. So congratulations to you. And thank you all for coming this evening. Hope you've enjoyed the talk. I've really enjoyed giving it. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.